Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm uh, the substitute teacher this week, uh, so I expect you to be on your your best behavior. Um, And I'll report back to Father Nicholas uh, everything. Um, We are, I'm going to pick up uh, where Father Nicholas has left off midway through the Lord's Prayer. And We've been tracing, walking through the Lord's Prayer petition by petition. You'll notice that the Catechism numbers these petitions, uh, just like Jesus told his disciples. Uh, There's seven of them, and um, many of the uh, in the tradition have seen a sort of pattern in. uh, You know, if you're if you're looking for numerical patterns. The church is always happy to find sevens everywhere. So it's just a great, great number to find in, in things. So there's seven petitions uh, in the Lord's Prayer. And there's a sort of transition in between the first three and the final four. Your, our catechism calls this, alerts us to this in question 189 that we looked at last week. Having prayed first... For God's glory, kingdom, and will, what do you now pray? And you're asking, we're asking for um, provisions for ourselves, for others. We're asking for pardon for sins and for protection from evil. Um, St. Augustine, among others, would divide these, the first three, as these, these, these eternal petitions. Like he says, you never stop asking for God's name to be hallowed or God's will to be done because you're not asking for God to change something, start doing something new, you're asking for this thing that's always true to be always ongoing. However, in, in the afterlife, uh, you don't ask for forgiveness for sins, right? You don't ask, you have no need for bread. Uh, you're not um, being tempted by evil. So um, people have found in these in the petitions here a sort of uh, eternal, temporal kind of kind of dynamic that's going on. And so this is where we are. We're picking up with the fifth petition. Uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So let's begin with question 193. Question 193, page 75. What is the fifth petition? The fifth petition is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you'll, you'll see there, we, um, the scriptures point you to both Matthew 6, 12, and see also Luke 11. And why does it, why does it do that? Go ahead, Taylor. Which is basically, yeah, we have two different versions of of the Lord's Prayer. There's one in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, which is more like the one that we pray. 
And there's um, a different uh, Lord's Prayer that's found in Luke. Uh, so we have, there's these two instances, and the one that we use in, in most commonly is, as we see, a, a bit of a mixture of things, particularly with this, with this petition. Well, let's keep going. Question 194, what are trespasses? A trespass is a sin, a thought, word, or deed which offends God's holy character and violates his law missing the mark of his will and expectations. So I don't mean to scandalize you, but uh, as, as the substitute teacher, I I'm, you know, feel just totally at liberty to say whatever I want. Um, <laughs> but trespasses is neither in the Matthew version or the Luke version. I'm sorry to tell you that. Look at, look at this devil fact-checking. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, go for it. No, so um, Matthew says debts, forgive us our debts, if you heard this language. Luke says, forgive us our sins, different, different Greek words. But then, here we go, I'm, I'm not going to leave you hanging, it's going to be okay. When Ma- uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finishes teaching the words that we know of as the Lord's Prayer, he then uses the language of trespass. So that's where, that's where um, this language of trespass is used. It's not in the, the Lord's Prayer proper, but you'll notice it's immediately after, if you go to Matthew 6, and he's teaching the, the disciples to pray, right? So he says, as soon as, it, after he says, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one, he immediately goes on to give some extra explanation. And what's, out of all the things he's just taught them, what does he, what does he expound but precisely forgiveness? Because he goes on, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So this is, trespasses, this language that we have in the prayer, comes from this follow-up explanation on the Lord's Prayer. So we've got these three different words, trespass, debt, and sin. Now, and uh, the catechism here points us to the fact that a trespass is a sin, and it defines it as a thought, word, or deed which offends God's holy character and violates his law missing the mark of his will and expectations. So with these three words, trespass, debt, and sin, we're all circling around uh, something that they all have in common. So these are three, you could think of these even as three different lenses or metaphors into what it means to do that which we need forgiveness for, right? So a trespass, what's implied in, this, in the image of a trespass? Walking, right? You're walking where you're not supposed to go. You're walking past the sign that says, do not trespass. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a boundary marker. You're, you're walking where you're not supposed to go. Well, what's implied in the metaphor of uh, debt? 
<laughs> it's, it's a financial metaphor, right? A debt is something owed and something that, that we owe to, to God, you could say, that we are not offering, right? In the, in the sort of older style language, um, what, is, what is meet and right for us so to do, right? That which humans have been made for is to, um, to worship God, right? That's what we've been made for. That in, in that sense, that's what the word owed means here. What is owed to God is our spiritual worship. And then this language of sin is more, more specifically kind of religious or cultic language, right? Something has been, or, or, or more of a, a legal metaphor. Somebody is guilty, right? They're not innocent. It's the innocent guilty. So you've got three different words here all circulating around the Lord's Prayer in this forgive us our trespasses. This is, you know, creates for great uh, church visiting practice when you go to a church that says one of the other words, you know, you're immediately outed as the guest. You're like, oh, we say trespasses. But now, but again, what I, what I want to get at is that these are all, these are three different metaphors. They're all in the Bible, or they're three different words that are all found in the scriptures, all found associated with the Lord's Prayer. But they're helping us see, they're helping us give the language to this thing that not any one of the words gets at. Um, so, so again, to go back to this question, 194, it's a thought, word, or deed. So again, something you think, could be something you say, something you do, which offends God's holy character and violates his law. I don't know if you bristle when you hear uh, the language of offending God. Like, I, I feel a little bit like God's kind of like a, a, like a church lady, you know, and you're, you're running, through the, running through the sanctuary, you're, you're being too loud or something like this, and, and you're, you're offending somebody. You know, God's like, don't run, don't run, don't trespass. You know, this is, this is not the language, <laughs> this is not what it means to offend God, okay? Well, this, this language of, of offense is back to this language of debt, what is owed to God, what is right, uh, what is meet and right for one to do, what is proper, what is fitting, offending against God's, God's holy character. A violating of, of the law. Uh, uh, missing the mark. This is, again, to add on another metaphor. Missing the mark is a, an archery or a shooting metaphor. You're trying to hit a target and you're off, off target. Right? Uh, and it's missing the mark against what? God's will and expectations. This gets us, this harkens back to this language that we heard earlier when we've been learning the prayer, about God's will being done. So God's will as that which God orders, God uh, institutes, God, what God does, God's way of being. And, and to trespass, to sin, is to, to err, to go astray. Let's keep going. Question 195. Do you sin against God's law? Yes. I, together with all humankind, sin daily against God's law in thought, word, and deed. 
both by what I do and by what I fail to do. If you haven't gotten the thought word indeed yet, you know, you're starting to get it by now. And you'll also pick up that this is language. This is um, language that we use in the liturgy. And this way the catechism is instructing you, guiding you into the practices of confession and reconciliation that we participate in at the liturgy. The catechism is aim, aiming you towards, uh, towards worship. And so it does this by uh, asking you this blunt question and putting into your mouth <laughs> this confession, this admitting that you sin. And for, for many of us, uh, this is a difficult thing to have to say. Uh, you know, if you ask me, do you sin against God's law? I want to be like, oh, no, no, I don't. But yes, yes, you do. And the, in the catechism, just like in the prayer of confession that we say on a weekly basis, if it makes you say this. Why does it make you say this? So you don't want to say it. Part of the uh, offense is not wanting to admit things that are true <laughs> about us, right? We want to hide. This is, you know, the, the paradigmatic um, Adam and Eve situation here for us, lived out on a daily basis. We don't want to admit wrongdoing. We don't want to say that we're sorry, right? Um, and, and we sin daily against God's law in thought, word, and deed, both by what I do and by what I fail to do. This is, uh, in technical language, these are sins of omission and sins of commission, right? Things that you omit to do, that you, that you don't do, that you know you should do, that are right to do, and by what you do, by what you do in actively trespassing or not paying your debt uh, or not doing what is, what is right to do. So we're, we're um, brought into this place of having to say, yes, I together with all humankind sin daily. We don't want to say this, uh, and we want to be, we want to be uh, the, the innocent, the clean, the pure, the ones who are not in error, so we can point to those who are in error. But the Catechism reminds us that, that yes, we sin, we sin daily. But I thought that in baptism, we receive the forgiveness of sins, so if we're baptized and you've received the forgiveness of sins, why do we say that we still sin daily? Because we do, right? <laughs> because that's just a true thing. Uh, but yes, but theologically, what is happening here, this is... Um, this is the difference between uh, the forgiveness of the original sin, the guilt of sin that we inherit, uh, and versus the daily trespasses, the daily sins. Um, and for some throughout the tradition, they would call this daily praying of the Lord's Prayer your daily baptism. Because it, it harkens back to, it's the same kind of logic of baptism, right? But it's working out of what is true about us in baptism. 
We're cleansed in baptism of the stain of, of guilt, of this being um, opposed to God, of being of a different people, of being apart from God. We're welcomed into God's family through baptism, and in that we receive the forgiveness of sins, right? And yet we still have these habits, right? We still have these uh, ways of being that are, are being worked out, that are being transformed. The work of the Spirit is a transforming, sanctifying work throughout our life, uh, and one that we, that we look forward to the, um, an eschatological um, removal of sin that enables us to, to be absolutely free, right? So that's something that, that, that lies ahead. So there's this ongoing dynamic of life in the world. This is part of the sort of basic um, tension of being a Christian in the world, of being both forgiven of sin, capital S, and yet still participate, you know, still committing and omitting <laughs> these kinds of these kinds of sins on a daily basis. And so this is why this is one reason we pray the Lord's Prayer daily, and in many cases three times a day, um, is because that's about how many times we it's at least <laughs> how many times we sin. Uh, so we need this as a daily uh, a daily practice. So. Question 196, what is God's forgiveness? God's forgiveness is his merciful pardon of sin and removal of the guilt that results from our disobedience. This is going along with with what we've been talking about here. God's forgiveness is his merciful pardon of sin. This This is back to the language of the law court, right? The guilty is stands accused before the judge and is pardoned of sin. The judge, this is the judge saying, I declare you not guilty. Right? This is a, a sentence. This is a proclamation. This is a word from somebody who has the authority to speak this word saying, you are forgiven of sin. Right? But then that's not the only part of forgiveness. Forgiveness is pardon of sin, this declaration of God saying, you are forgiven. That is now a true fact about you. To this other, the second part, the removal of guilt that results from disobedience. And this is part of the ongoing work of sanctification, a continual cleansing a continual, a daily bath uh, in, in, ex, in both offering and receiving forgiveness. There's a twofold movement here. God's forgiveness is both one time, it is, it is a clear, firm declaration, you are forgiven. But it is also not only that, it is also, in addition, an ongoing, a cleansing, a healing a removal of this, of guilt understood here as, as a kind of stain, something that has bled into your very being and is being cleansed, is being removed. You know, I have, I have young children and, and they make an incredibly, uh, incredible amount of stains <laughs> that are very difficult to remove, right? Um, and some more, more unpleasant than others. But in any case, there is a, um, process of removing 
this stain, an ongoing cleansing that, that needs to happen. And so this is why, again, sin is both forgiven, a one-time clear declaration, and an ongoing daily practice. Now, question 197. On what basis do you ask forgiveness? I ask God, our loving Father, to forgive me through his Son, Jesus Christ, who bore my sins upon the cross, so that through faith and baptism I can receive his righteousness. So here you are, you're midway through the catechism, question 197, and boom, there's just the, the gospel just preached at you, right, right, out of the, right out of the middle of this um, petition on forgiveness of trespasses. On what basis do you ask God for, ask for forgiveness? Because you're a good person? Because you're, you're a nice person? Because you, you go to catechesis? You know, you're, you know, you're here? You go to church? No, we only ask, uh, we only, on what basis, the ground, the foundation of our forgiveness is through Jesus Christ who bore my sins upon the cross so that through faith and baptism I can receive his righteousness. This is what's known as the great exchange. There's this exchange that happens where um, through Christ's uh, perfect life lives, his death and resurrection on the cross, he receives um, the, the payment that was due to us, for using again this, this debt financial language. Uh, he receives the payment of death that we were owed so that by taking that on, he enables us, he gives us his righteousness, the payment that is due to Christ. Right? So there's this, there's again, what's called the, the great exchange. Uh, this um, God forgives us through Christ who bore my sins upon the cross so that through faith and baptism I can receive his righteousness. This through faith and baptism again is is what we, what we see at the, the baptismal vows that we make, this what being welcomed into to God's family, be going from a, a servant to, to a son. And uh, the, the gingered language there is not to, not to say that this is exclusive to males, but it's to remind you that your participation is, is not based on you, but it's your participation in the son, right? The son of, son of God. So your... Uh, your adoption is into Christ's sonship. You're participating in um, Christ's life with the Father, and this is what we've been what we've been um, learning as we've been being catechized in prayer. Is that this prayer when we pray to God, our Father, right? When we were working through this this part of the petition, who is God, our Father? When we pray to our Father, this is the prayer of the family. This is the family prayer. This is. And this is why the Lord's Prayer was always taught you know, during a pre-baptismal preparation because this is the prayer that you learn as part of the family. So it leads you into what it means to be a son of God. And let's see. Let's do the, let's do the last one in this section, 198. Does God forgive your sins? Yes, in Christ, God freely forgives the sins of all, including me, 
who sincerely repent and in true faith turn to him. So this, this is again this question. Now, every once in a while you'll notice the catechism switches to the first person. Right? This is saying, like we did earlier, and said, do you sin against God's law? Yes, I do. Does God forgive your sins? Yes. Even me. <laughs> Even Paul. <laughs> God, each one of us, it's, it's a personal address. It's, it's, again, the catechism is asking you to put this in your own voice, to make these words your own. In Christ, God freely forgives the sins of all. Free for you, right? Uh, it's, it's free in the sense that you're not doing something in order to, to guarantee uh, God's forgiveness. You're not uh, presuming upon God's grace. This freedom is, is, is a gifted freedom. It's given through uh, the unmerited uh, gift that we receive in Christ. So yes, God freely forgives the sins of all, including me, who sincerely repent and in turn and in true faith turn to him. This, this is the sort of proper meaning of, of conversion. This idea of repentance, which is turning away from something, and but also not just turning away from it, but turning toward something else. This is putting us back in the trespass uh, world where we're wandering astray. And we're, we're going this way, we're turning astray. But the movement of conversion is turning back towards, towards the path, aiming once again towards the mark that, that we're trying to hit. So it's a sense of, uh, in God's forgiveness, we, we experience this turning away and turning towards. So there we are, right in the midst of this, of this question on, uh, on prayer, we have this mini uh, preaching of the gospel of God's good news and God's, God's forgiveness. Um, so let's pause there for some questions. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good. That's a good. A good question. It is more, um, as far as I understand it, more of a traditional precedent. Like, um, and of course, this is an, an English specifically an English language question too. Um, so one of the other priests would know better uh, that knows their, their Anglican history well about when these, um, you know, during the 16th century especially, but even building on prior precedents. This is one of the kind of foundational Reformation issues is what language are, are you going to, to say this in? Are you going to say it in, in the Western church anyway? Are you going to say this in Latin? Or, or are you going to say this in your your native language, whether that's French or English or, or German. Um, so you're going to have, this is, this is going to be when uh, this becomes an issue and, and then what gets the sort of precedent. So 
The, the language, as I understand it, of trespass was, was fairly early on in the 16th century Anglican uh, prayer books. Um, and there is something uh, about changing liturgical precedent. It, that, that is, it is incredibly hard to do, especially with the Lord's Prayer. Um, and maybe we might get to this when uh, we get to the lead us not into temptation. There's a few years ago that uh, Pope Francis got into a stir because he's like, this isn't, this isn't the right language. God doesn't lead us into temptation. So there's this like miniature you know, kerfuffle about, you know, is Pope Francis going to change the language of the Lord's Prayer? Like it's just a... Um, and there's something, there's something, I will say, there's something really right about um, not wanting to change the language. And that this is the language, not just about, because it's not just about what, what speaks to us, you know, as the kind of question we want to ask, but this is the language um, that joins us to the communion of saints, joins us to praying in the same uh, language that... Um, this great tradition has has prayed, so there. Uh, um, it's um, it's one of those things that should not be should not be changed lightly, especially with the language of prayer, uh, because this is the language. This is the fundamental language that we give people to speak. Um, so the the sort of simple answer is this is the sort of language that the church has discerned is is going to be. Use not not so specific. Somebody was like, "We're going to use this language, and we don't want to we don't want to think about debts and sins. We just want to use trespasses." This is more of a, a sort of common tradition way of uh, establishing this this language. But again, not to the not to the exclusion of of any of these other other metaphors. But to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Debt, debt kind of falls out. He said, "Yeah, that's true." And, and there's a there's a number of people that that are more wanting uh, to to recover the specifically debt language of of the Lord's Prayer because I mean there's good reason to say that um, actually what you know in a first century context you know that it. Debt forgiveness is actually a big thing. This is a this is a huge part of of Jewish custom, right? The Jubilee every every forty nine years, you forgive people's financial debts. Um, so um, while I think the sort of spiritual meaning of debt is sort of primary in this, uh, we don't want to lose touch with with the debt language. Um, but the, the debt sort of language has also just become increasingly problematic for, for some people and, uh, because of this sense of, of it's kind of a Reformation issue, like this issue of why, what we owe to God, right? That, that language for some of us is, is, is harder to swallow. Um, and there's a good way to articulate what is owed, right? This, this language of debt. Um, but it needs a little more seems to need a little more explanation uh, than we're often willing willing to give it. Um, I've heard Father Nicholas talk about this before um, in talking about what is owed, what is owed God. Um, so you can, you can quiz, him on, quiz him on that. Ask him to start talk, talk, talking about Thomas Aquinas or something like that. Other questions about 
forgiveness. We're only halfway through the forgiveness petition, as, as you'll, you'll recall. We're, we're sort of framing this in terms of our asking God for forgiveness, which is the, not coincidentally the first thing that we, that we discuss. Any other questions, though, on forgiveness, sin, debt? Okay, let's, let's keep going. Question 199. Why should you forgive others? I should forgive others because while I was still a sinner, God forgave me through Jesus Christ. Failing to forgive impedes God's work in my life and gives opportunity to the evil one. So it asks these questions. It turns, you notice the catechism turns from asking questions. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So this kind of brings up this, uh, this twofold movement here. There is a forgiveness that we experience and receive from God. And then there is, that's, you might call that the vertical dimension of forgiveness, which is commensurate with this horizontal uh, understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation. And again, you could raise the question uh, from a sort of, you know, a reading of scripture. You say, forgive us, if it, the, the passage says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And again, in Jesus' sort of explanatory comments on this passage, what does he say? If you don't forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. This sounds like a condition. Yes? We do not receive God's forgiveness unless we first forgive others. Does this keep you up at night, Taylor? No, it doesn't. You, yeah, you're of reformed background. This is a question wouldn't even, wouldn't even occur to you. <laughs> uh, so this, this is what is, you know, you could, you could raise this, this question. Um, is God's forgiveness uh, dependent upon our forgiveness? Does God forgive us because we forgive others? Um, obviously, what I'm, what I'm sort of implying is that that's not the case. And again, the catechism guides you, I think, uh, into a way of understanding this petition in a way that affirms this, this view that um, God forgives us first. While I was still a sinner, God forgave me through Jesus Christ. And that is the basis, that is the foundation upon which uh, we forgive others. So this as here, the, the crucial term, as, <laughs> as we forgive those who trespass against us, is something more like um, um, a parallel. It's something like, um, well, Greg of Nyssa thought that this was the sort of pinnacle of Christian sanctification because uh, this is the, the closest you get to imitating God and forgiving others, right? This is, as the scripture says, who can forgive sins but God, right? And Greg of Nyssa is like, well, if you're forgiving others, 
you are, this is, this is what he, he would call something like deification. This is something like the, the, your closest you get to sort of imitating God. This is your sharing in God's life, is your, the giving of forgiveness that, that we receive in Christ. Uh, and so the, the kind of key uh, parable here is that great one from, uh, from Matthew 18. So you'll notice in the scripture commentaries, Matthew 18 shows up several times uh, in this. And this is the, the, the parable, you know, in, in this version that the authors, the editors translate as the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is the guy that, um, you know, owed somebody bill, the equivalent of billions of dollars, a billion dollar debt was owed to, to the master. A servant owes his master billions of dollars and then um, pleads for forgiveness, receives forgiveness, and then his co-laborer uh, owes him, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And the guy goes and rings him around the neck and wants to kill this guy because he owes him a couple hundred bucks when he's just been forgiven a billion dollar debt. This is the kind of, what Jesus is saying is the kind of, he's helping us imagine both the extravagance of God's gift of forgiveness as well as uh, the, the claims that it makes upon us, right? To be forgiven is to be welcomed into a family, as, as we've been saying, to, be, to call God our Father, uh, to be welcomed into a family the basis of which is forgiveness. So the reconcile, you're welcomed into, you're forgiven into the forgiving family, right? So this becomes a marker, a sort of characteristic of the family's way of life. Um, even if the, the difference between our debts between one another are absolutely petty compared to the extraordinary debt that we've been forgiven in Christ, Yet it becomes a sort of basis. It becomes a sort of, um, again, if we're thinking about in terms of what is what is proper, what is fitting for for us to do, uh, being forgiven, the fitting uh, response is forgiveness. Uh, so it, it welcomes us into this kind of community of, of forgiveness. Failing to forgive, this question question one ninety nine is a question about. Um, the reasons why we forgive. Failing to forgive impedes God's work in my life and gives opportunity to the evil one. If we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? This is a way in which we're either impeding that work, working against that kind of work, or at the same time, as we will get into in the next petition, a way of opening the door to temptation, letting, letting in the evil one, giving the evil one room to work. So in this sense, um, forgiveness is, is, is about your own well-being, your own health, your spiritual health, uh, as, as it is about um, the sort of fabric of, of this reconciling community. So it impedes God's work in one's life. So question 200, how do you forgive others? 
Forgiveness is a decision of my will and an attitude of my heart that seeks the good of my neighbor and chooses not to hold against them the damage they have inflicted. So why and how? (laughs) Why do we forgive? The the basis of our forgiveness is Jesus Christ. How do we do that, though? How do we do that? The language here is specifically is focusing on the will, the attitude, the heart. Um, it manifests in real deeds, right? This, it's not saying that forgiveness is just, um, I'm going to be silently thinking uh, that I'm, I'm forgiving somebody who wronged me and not doing anything about it. It manifests in actions and deeds, but it's primarily a decision of the will, It begins with that. Again, we're learning to align our wills with God's will so that we can say, thy will be done. It's an attitude of the heart that seeks the good of the neighbor and chooses not to hold against them the damage they have inflicted. And again, so, and I forgive whether they have asked forgiveness or not. So again, this is is a question about... um, to go back to the last question, failing to forgive impedes God's work in my life. When we refuse forgiveness, when we withhold that, when we've received this uh, magnificent forgiveness in Christ, if we choose to not extend that, to block the the passageway through which the the sort of currents of forgiveness flow, um, then we're, again, we're impeding God's will. We're getting in the way. We're sort of standing in the way and saying, don't go through me. I'm, <laughs> I'm blocking the path. Uh, so this is, a, a, but it is, it's about a turning of the will and attitude. It's not so always saying this is something you feel like doing. <clears throat> this is what the language is of will is getting to. <clears throat> Forgiveness is not about whether you feel like doing it or not. It's not asking you. It's not asking you how how you feel about it. It's asking you to make a decision, to choose to do so. Does it mean it's going to be easy? Does it always mean it's going to feel nice? Oftentimes it doesn't feel nice. Uh, And oftentimes it doesn't get the the results that we may want, which leads us to, to the next question, question 201. Will your forgiveness of others always result in reconciliation? No. Through my decision and desire to forgive may not result in my neighbor's repentance or our reconciliation, I am still called to forgive. So this is just the reality of living in a fallen world, is that even if you offer forgiveness, even if you choose not to to withhold uh, forgiveness, is it just a guarantee that reconciliation will happen? No. No, uh, often it does. You hope that it does. That's the sort of goal of this. But again, this side of the eschaton, a absolute reconciliation is not a guarantee. It's not always going to happen. That's something that that we um, aspire to. Something that we that we look forward to. Um, again, the, this um, this question points us back to the Matthew 18 parable of, of the unforgiving servant. Um, and we see how that did not work out in reconciliation, right? Um, so again, this is, it focuses the question back on decision, 
and desire, choosing an act of the will to forgive, may not result in my neighbor's repentance or reconciliation. Nevertheless, I'm still called to forgive. This is again pointing us to the language of the liturgy, what we do every week in the confession of sin and the pardon of sin. We go forward, we kneel, we receive this posture of humility. There's a physical posture that goes with with confession. Uh, We're given words to confess our sins. We're given this language that we didn't choose on our own. Um, and, it, and it opens us up into a larger realm of, of confession that, than we would have otherwise uh, wanted to. If left to my own devices, I'm just going to you know, say I'm sorry for petty things like forgetting to turn on the, the dishwasher or something like that. But when I'm f- forced to kneel and confess what we, what we are given to confess uh, in the prayer book, um, then I'm, I'm opened up. I'm turned inside out. I'm welcomed into a a much broader world of both confession and of reconciliation. I'm I'm in touch with the larger depth of sin that I'm given to, but also the more extraordinary um, means of reconciliation that God has been, that God has gifted to us. And so we see this, we confess our sins, right? And then the priest pronounces forgiveness to us, and then what happens next? Well, not in, not in Lent. You'll notice the, the Lenten series is, is broken up a little differently, but normally, confession happens. We are, for, we are forgiven by the priest on behalf of, of God. The priest speaks on behalf of God. And then what do we do? We get up, and we look at each other, and we say, the peace of the Lord be always with you. Now, is this like, you know, the 1960s, like, peace, man, peace, go in peace. No, this is not, this is the peace of Christ that is, that is being given. The peace that we have received, we then extend to one another. So this, this reconciliation that happens with Christ is now enacted in a community, in a social body. This body of the church is designed to be a place of reconciliation, a place where God's peace, the peace of Christ, is extended, is worked out in the fabric of ordinary life. So when what we do in passing the peace is not just some like a time to to greet your friends and, and say hello. Um, this is a time in which we are, we are both practicing the peace, of the heavenly peace, the peace which passes understanding, but it's not only a time of practicing, it's a time of, of enacting that. It's a time of instantiating, of, of, of visualizing in ordinary life what God's kingdom on, earth, on heaven as an earth looks like. It's a small taste of that, um, but this is what the liturgy is pointing us to. And as we're learning to pray, 
this is what our, again, if, if the Lord's Prayer is kind of a daily bath, of a, a daily baptism, then each aspect of the Lord's Prayer, in this case, praying for forgiveness uh, and, and offering forgiveness, is a daily sort of gesture towards what we receive uh, every week at the Eucharist. So there's this, there's this mutual, there's this living out in everyday life, this praying into the way of Christ that happens in, in everyday life. Um, questions on, on this, forgiveness and reconciliation. I've kind of breezed over a lot of this. It feels very quickly. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean by that simply um, that forgiveness is, uh, is something that, that will, it, uh, it begins in, in the heart. It begins with a decision of the will, um, but it's often going to, to extend itself into, say, an actual conversation. It's going to go to someone and say, um, what you did hurt me. I forgive you. And, they, and again, the answer they may say is, well, I don't acknowledge that. I'm not going to do anything with that. That's okay. Um, but it's not going to, but it's going to seek the actual uh, reconciliation with that person and not just remain inside of you as a, as a sort of spiritual, a nice thought that you have. I'm, I'm going to forgive this person, but I'm not actually ever going to do anything about it or talk to them about it. Um, there could be some cases in which that forgiveness is not possible, right? If somebody um, uh, murders, a, murders a loved one, for instance, and then, that, and then commits suicide, say, just, well, that person, you have no opportunity to forgive that person in, in deed, properly so speaking, but yet you still could that still could be worked out in other ways, right? So I think of the, I mean, uh, I, I lived for a time in, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and then uh, we weren't living there at the time, but the, the horrible um, murders that happened at the church uh, in Charleston, in an African-American church from, from several years ago, I mean, just the overwhelming response uh, of people uh, I guess it, 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 in that case, the, Dylan Roof is still alive, and, but they still offered this forgiveness that was, you know, wasn't received. It didn't manifest in a sort of actual reconciliation. But this this is just a stunning example of how the reconcil the, the the movement of forgiveness is just so clearly a a visualization of of something divine. Right, uh, and uh, and this is this is um, sadly be, becomes something that um, we are as a as a culture getting away from. Um, we are less inclined to see f- uh, forgiveness as as a as a good thing as a as a virtue. You know, this is a um, and clear. This is one of those sort of Christian virtues that we've inherited um, just as a. As a, as a culture, yet we're slowly sort of uh, getting, getting away from, in that a lot of people would say now that 
If you want to see real change, you don't forgive people. You get angry. Righteous anger, as, as, some, will, as some will justify this. And so this, is, this has become the language of forgiveness and, uh, and um, forbearance, of patience, it can, now be, can now be seen as, uh, as an impediment to achieving justice, say, or something like that. So this, I think increasingly, the, this language of forgiveness, which we've always sort of inhabited as a culture, as just a, everybody thinks forgiveness is a good idea, I think this will, will be increasingly strange and will be increasingly sort of marked out as a, that's not an effective way to do things. This is not a good way of getting things done. Um, and yet, I, you know, as, as Christians, we can't do otherwise. I mean, this is a sort of um, the foundation of, of, our very, of our very existence, our very way of life. Other questions on that? That was a lot of, a lot there, yeah. Not seeking reconciliation when you can. Um, yeah, it, I, it's it's one of those. I I, I do. But the short answer is short answer is yes. Like reconciliation is the goal. Now there could be. There's always extenuating circumstances, and I'm not a pastor, and so I I don't deal with this. So you, you know, ask a ask a pastor because they would say I think. They would say there's some cases in which it is helpful for you to, to separate yourself from a harmful circumstance. You know, the sort of classic example is the, the abusive spouse, right? So um, if you're in an abusive relationship, um, you may not need to go back and just keep going back into that same situation and saying, I forgive you, I, let's be reconciled, right? In that case, it may be, it may be a need to to have some boundaries, to have some physical separation. And yet, you can still, achieve, still work for reconciliation within that, uh, within that kind of scenario. So that's a, that's a kind of a discernment issue, I think, and one, one that, that should be worked out sort of in conversation with a spiritual guide or director. Um, but nevertheless, the, the point is still the case that and this is this is this is maybe a good thing why why we we say that reconciliation doesn't always happen because it's not something that can be forced right these are these are movements that depend on on two people's wills and we we know quite well from experience how hard it is for two wills to be in line um, uh, it just that's just the more the more you you live with someone you the more you realize how it is it is hard to be in step to be in line uh, but to to but to be in a place where reconciliation is the goal whether that's a this worldly goal or an otherworldly goal is still the move that's still the aim that that we're on but but yeah it, there's still there's always sort of particular circumstances that that reconciliation may may look different it may be needed to be worked out in in different kind of ways but yeah it's a good question is there one more question? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're. Absolutely, and this is a this is a um, a great example of how um, our our theology really matters. <laughs> In this case, um, uh, this is this makes me think of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Right, this is classic. Where you go to when you're like talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, divine simplicity. What are you talking about? Divine simplicity, God it means God is not made up of parts. God is one, one being, one essence, one nature, one power, etc. He's not made up of parts. What this means is God isn't one part mercy and one part justice. Right? It's not like you can separate God's mercy and God's justice. We hardly have, we don't have uh, good metaphors for what that is like. Right, um, but we we nonetheless confess that, and we nonetheless aspire to that, and we nonetheless believe that that is true, that God is both mercy and justice, and that these these are inextricable uh, ways of being in God, and 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 increasingly, our I think we're we're losing that. We're saying if you want, you can either have mercy or justice, but you can't have both, right? And so you're going to have the mercy people over here and the justice people over here and, and never the twain shall meet. Well, in the cross they meet. <laughs> uh, and they reveal um, both judgment. The cross reveals God's inextricable judgment and mercy. We'll stop there. Um, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, start in just a couple minutes.